Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you so very much for joining us tonight for the fourth event of our series titled Black Wall Street, The Past, Present, and Future of Black Excellence. For those that may be tuning in for the first time, my name is Amanda Chesting, and I'm the Diversity Officer at the University of Tulsa here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I will be tonight's co-moderator alongside Dr. Dale Caldwell. As always, I have to take a moment to thank all of our sponsors, including the Black Entrepreneurship Hall of Fame, the Black Inventors Hall of Fame, and the Black Tennis Hall of Fame for supporting this event series to honor Tulsa's Black Wall Street and celebrate the wonderful achievements and successes of previous, current, and future Black leaders. But before I introduce our spotlight guest and enter into the question and answer portion of the program, I will now turn it over to Dale, Glenn, and James to briefly introduce themselves and share a little bit about their organization as it relates to the upcoming induction ceremony that will actually take place here in Tulsa on the commemorative week of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. So Dale, I will turn it over to you. Thank you, Amanda, and, and this thank you and the University of Tulsa for putting this on. <clears throat> um, before I introduce the Executive Director of the Black Entrepreneurs Hall of Fame, Glenn Best, and the Black Inventors Hall of Fame, James Howard, um, they're going to talk a little, little bit about this May 30th uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a ceremony remembering the victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre, but also inducting um, individuals in their halls of fame. Unfortunately, Sheila Curry from the Black Tennis Hall of Fame was unable to make, a, make it tonight. And we also are announcing the Black Executives Hall of Fame to really highlight Black excellence. So with that, I'll turn it over to Glenn. Thank you, Dale. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm delighted to uh, have this, other, this opportunity to once again um, talk about the Black Entrepreneurs Hall of Fame and the celebration that we are uh, conducting around uh, acknowledging the accomplishments of, of entre Black entrepreneurs who have gone before us. Um, we've tied this in to the 100th anniversary of, of the Black Wall Street uh, massacre, primarily to bring to highlight um, the, the ingenuity, the creativity, the, uh, the stick-to-itiveness of, of Black entrepreneurs who were able to overcome many barriers as they started businesses, as they ran businesses and, and created wealth within different uh, communities, um, not only in Tulsa, but around the country. Um, but more than that, the Black Entrepreneurs Hall of Fame represents an opportunity for us to also um, provide inspiration to future young Black entrepreneurs who are coming behind. Um, so we plan to have a number of programs uh, moving forward around both young entrepreneurships and, and supporting existing uh, black entrepreneurs that we'll be announcing as well. But we're really excited about the opportunity to, to in, have our inaugural induction ceremony in Tulsa in, in commemoration of, of the uh, 100th anniversary event. Uh, we feel like it's fitting. Um, it's uh, a once in a lifetime opportunity. And we're looking forward to having everyone participate in this event. And, this, and we'd like to thank Amanda and US, University of Tulsa for allowing us to partner in this, this endeavor. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. I appreciate, Amanda, you having us uh, in this forum right now. We appreciate our guest speaker, Ralph Sampson. 
I'm the James Howard, the executive director of the Black Inventors Hall of Fame. And the Black Inventors Hall of Fame was formed so that the genius of African-American inventors could be immortalized. And we subscribe to the notion that it is important to look to the past so that the future can be encouraged. So on that momentous day that everyone has spoken of so far on May 30th, when we commemorate 100 years uh, of the Tulsa Race Massacre, on that momentous day, the Black Inventors Hall of Fame will be inducting six inaugural inductees into its Hall of Fame, three from the past and three from the future. And like my brother ben, Glenn made note, we are equally excited to be part of this Black Excellence Alliance and we thank wholeheartedly Amanda and the University of Tulsa uh, for having us contribute. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dale, Glenn, and James. But speaking of Black excellence, we are in the presence of an NBA legend, and I have the honor of introducing our guest this evening, Ralph Sampson. Ralph Lee Sampson Jr. was born on July 7th, 1960 in Harrisonburg, Virginia, to the proud parents of Ralph and Sarah Sampson and the eldest of three children. Sampson credits his sound small town upbringing in Harrisonburg, as well as a love and support of his parents and high school basketball coach for his success today. At a young age, Sampson learned both the importance of teamwork and leadership as he led his high school basketball team to three state championships, becoming the most heavily recruited prospect of his generation. After high school with a height of seven feet, four inches, Samson went on to the University of Virginia where he posted an impressive 123 versus 22 record, won a championship and was voted national player of the year in three of his four seasons. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated an unprecedented six times in a span of less than four years. All the while, Samson handled his fame with class and dignity, never putting himself above his teammates. Upon receiving a BA in communications, Samson was selected by the Houston Rockets as a number one pick in the NBA draft. As a rookie, he averaged 21 points and 11 rebounds and won the NBA Rookie of the Year. A five-time All-Star during his career with the Rockets, he led his team to the NBA Finals in 1986. He went on to play for the Golden State Warriors and completed his NBA career with the Sacramento Kings. He has been inducted into the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame in 2011, and the Smith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2012. During his professional career and afterwards as a coach at James Madison University, Samson began to realize his calling for teaching and mentoring children, beginning with the Winter Circle, an organization Samson founded to help youth in various cities. Samson trained and prepared children, both as players and people. As he watched kids turn Fs into As, Samson was inspired to create his trademark program, Motivation, Attitude, Plan for Success, also known as MAP. Whether nurturing a business or working with kids, Ralph Samson's guiding principle is the same, give back and stand for something. This college basketball legend and retired NBA great has made a second career out of doing just that 
as a founder of the Winter Circle Enterprises and the Samson Family Foundation. Organizations devoted to consulting, business development, motivational speaking, and more importantly, the support and mentoring of youth in education, career, and self-development. So welcome, Ralph. Thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone. Good to see everybody. Thank you. And now, Dale, I'll go ahead and pass it off to you. Well, Ralph, I'll start out with the questions. I, I had a chance last week to learn something about you that people don't know, that you are a talented radio personality. The Winter Circle Radio <laughs> Show. They had me on your radio show, and you were, you're gifted at everything you do, my friend. So, so I want to start. Let's start with the, the, the question about basketball. I know there's another sport you liked as well. What inspired you to pursue basketball, and, and who were your mentors growing up? Well, thank you. Yeah, we have a radio show and a national podcast that we're developing. It's pretty fun. Again, thank you for being on it. We got a great, great response uh, while you were there. And uh, we'll, we'll reconvene after this in the next number of days and kind of highlight you with that as well. But my small town upbringing in Harrisburg, Virginia, uh, you have to understand the population, maybe 30 or 40,000 people. Um, basketball was not my favorite sport um, uh, because we played on a six-foot basket. And you can only score 16 points a game per player. And I had 16 points in the first quarter. And so I would have to rebound the ball and pass it back out to everybody else. And we scored. So we never lost a game in what it was called the little recreational league. But I hated basketball because I couldn't, they wouldn't let me play. So I tend to play baseball. I had an uncle that played in the, in the, in the Negro League in the baseball, the whole deal. He pitched and he taught me how to pitch and I threw sidearm. And it would curve and do its thing. But as you continue to grow every year, so uh, up until I was uh, age 17, I grew, my shoe size grew 17, 16, 15, 14 every year. And then my height went from, you know, 5'10 to 6'2 to 6'7. I mean, it just elevated every year. And my arm got a little bit lax and the ball would not curve anymore. So it would hit right-handed batters. And they said, well, you got to go to first base. Okay, great. I moved to first base and I would catch the ball with my off glove hand because they would throw it all wild and I was so tall to get it. And my mother said, you're going to break your hand if you keep doing that. So then she had to move me to outfield and that was so boring. I said, let me go back to playing basketball. <laughs> so in the ninth grade, I was about six seven. So I, I, I fell in love with the game of basketball at that point in time because I was developing really quickly. And I had great network of community cousins and family and friends in our neighborhood that, that we've lost so much over the over the number of years here. But my cousins wouldn't let me play with the big boys because I was too thin. And they would beat everybody up at night, whatever. And then so I got really good over a couple years span. And then I would beat them. And then the lights would go out. I get nine. You had to run home. So anyway, long story short, that was my passion coming up, uh, just the basketball side. But, you know, my parents motivated me in every way I could. So that's kind of how I started playing the game. Awesome. Good to know. Well, as a fellow collegiate softball player who was an outfielder, I have to respectfully disagree with you. I <laughs> love playing in the outfield. It was not boring for me, at least. Well, well, for me, it was because the balls never came to left field because I guess we had great pitching or something. I don't know. But I, I did play okay, softball as well. And I, I love, to, love to play softball. So I, I would, you know, uh, commend you for your Great softball work ethic. So you understand what I'm talking about. I do. I do. Thank you. All right. So, you know, you have had just an outstanding career in the NBA. So 
what would you say is your favorite memory or can you share a little bit about what you feel is your greatest accomplishment or even defining moment? Well, just basketball in general from high school on to college to the NBA and after. So there are some defining moments in life that you all have, must understand. So uh, and it started back as yeah, an early, early child. I would, my mother said, okay, you're going to play the piano. And I'm going to pay for you to play the piano. And you're going to go. And then I would grow up a year. And the lady said, Mr. Sampson, your son will never play the piano. His hands are too big. He's hitting two notes at the same time. And my mother said, guess what? You're going to play the piano because I paid for it. You're going to take these lessons no matter what. So everything I got taught at an early age was is you had to complete it. If you started, you got to finish it. So from early on, that was kind of the first thing that my parents taught me at that point in time, no matter what it was. And that stuck with me from, from even today. So from high school on basketball, being in the ninth grade, being six foot seven and going to the state championships as a, as a freshman and moving from the junior varsity to the varsity, that was very significant. From every year after that, winning uh, another two state titles, having a great high school coach being recruited by over 1,200 schools around the country to deciding to go to University of Virginia for, for a significant reason. We can get into a, a, another question. And then moving to the, well, 3,000 college play. All that kind of stuff you see in words in behind me, which is not just pictures. All my words are at my parents' house. My mom got everything I ever got. I, I was able to get these out from my house here, but she got every other picture that I ever had. All the awards, all the trophies. And then in, in the NBA, they come riding with my teammates, but also you see Larry Bird up there and you see this, see this, uh, 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 net on the back. That net uh, was from the Laker game and winning and going to the to the championship against Larry Bird up there and that crew against Michael Cooper when he laid on the floor and started to cry or whatever. He's a good friend of mine, so I can talk about him a little bit. Those those significant things were in life, but I think the most significant thing was, and you guys understand this as well, and understand the plight of my career, which I never expected to be in the Hall of Fame. I didn't play to be in the Hall of Fame. I played to win. I said, but 2011 and 12 of the first person to be to be nominated for the College Hall of Fame and the Naismith Hall of Fame. Okay, ironically, I didn't get the Naismith that year, but a guy named Tim, I mean uh, Chris Mullen, got both. And you understand the color barrier, right? So I could not be the first, but I could be. The, so the next year, I got the Hall of Fame, right? So I got them every uh, subsequent years. But I understand the political ramification of, but I couldn't be the first of that. But my career record is probably a little bit better than his. So I understand I commend you guys for what you do in the Hall of Fame area. So you should commend those guys and people that you nominate should be very thankful for that. But that's the most prestigious honor you can ever get by playing the game of basketball. So that's very special to me as well. Thank you. So, 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 so Ralph, I mean, you, you know, you've, you, uh, you've been so outstanding in, 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 in basketball, and I'm sure you've faced some hurdles. Did you deal with prejudice, or what were some of the hurdles that you've Well, you know, there's, you know, when you play sports, uh, especially at UVA, um, you are, are, are in the, the sports arena, which was called University Hall, which is only one building on campus. And I got recruited there, and... I go there and I take a helicopter ride on top of the building that says Ralph's house. Somebody has painted Ralph's house on it. So, okay, cool. All that was great. I didn't want to take a helicopter ride. I was scared. You know, I mean, six, seven foot guy being a helicopter that doesn't quite work, right? Um, so all the athletes 
it was a community of us in the same building. Now in all these schools, everybody has their own buildings and their own whatever, so you don't mix and mingle with athletes anymore. So you have everybody else in separate places. That, that's the first significant thing I see change today as well. But uh, the significance of that and attending that school, I didn't understand until after. So the prejudice I saw wasn't at school. I saw it in the classroom with teachers that didn't like athletes and they would change and make us go to another class. I saw the school uh, basically saying, you got to go up here because you don't really need to take a foreign language and say either you can test under it or you can test over it and get out of it. I tested over it, so I didn't have to take the foreign language. Like, okay, most athletes don't do that. You, you want to flunk it so you can get out of it. So I saw those significant things there, but I never paid attention. You know, you don't you don't see the athletes today. We just want to play. They don't teach you. They don't want to pay attention to that. So you, you see it, you go through it. But I really recognized that my last college basketball game, right? Because when it's over, your, your, your playing days are done. You're just a number. And then I was graduating as well. And I said, okay, great graduating. And I had some parking tickets uh, from my freshman year, et cetera, et cetera. They would not let me graduate until those parking tickets were paid, which was fine. But tell me about them back then. But everybody was keeping that from me at that point in time. So I'm trying to graduate. End up graduating. I had to pay those parking tickets to make it work. I was at a party at University of Virginia on the day before graduation. And this Caucasian guy took a piece of ice and something and hit me aside the head. And so I had, fortunately, some Caucasian teammates around me as well. They tried to beat that guy to death, you know, whatever. Like that. So the guy then came after me with his family, tried to sue me, right, because those guys, because I was going to the NBA, tried to sue me. So I had to deal with it at that point in time. So I didn't touch you. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't put the hand on you. If I would have, it would have been pretty ugly at that point in time because I was bleeding. I said, okay, you hit me in my temple. I'm getting ready to go play in the NBA, something out of there. So I seen it there as well. But even today at University of Virginia, I see it even more. Uh, and here's why. They will call me and ask me to go meet donors to help them raise it, $200 million they need to have, but they will not hire me as, a, as an ambassador at University of Virginia when I see Louisville doing it with Daryl Griffin, North Carolina doing it with Daryl Whitberg. But that Virginia stigma is still here, as you guys know of all the stuff that's happened over the last number of years in Charlottesville. That is still here in life. We still at Thomas Jefferson House. We got Trump winery not too far down the street. So it's still here. And so you want me to step and fetch it and do the dog and pony, but you don't want to pay me for that. So I still see it today as your question. Thank you that for sharing that. That is that is unbelievable. But at the same time, I'm not surprised, unfortunately. I'm not either. But we, we, we're going to beat it up, so get ready. Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Um, well, as you kind of gained, you know, lots of national recognition and honors, you know, what kept you grounded while having to try and balance, you know, fame, external stresses, um, your teammates? What, what kind of kept you grounded during that time? Well, my dear, when you grew up in Sarah and Ralph Sampson's house, uh, mother and father, so we, we have a 500-acre farm on my mother's side that in the morning you had to go and work the farm with your uncles and pick potatoes, whatever you gotta do. And then during Thanksgiving, you had to butcher and do all these little things uh, to survive. Uh, and that's the way they, they grew up. So you understand their work ethic. And then having parents that made you made you work, like, like make your bed every day. If it just, success is making your bed every day. That's what it is. I do that every day. I do that sometimes at hotel rooms. But I think the main thing was I had also two sisters. so. I, you know, my mother, like, I can cook, I can clean. When my sisters were playing their sport, 
I had to do the housework. And it was unfair. I told my mom it was unfair because they played basketball in the fall and track in the spring. So I had two seasons of housework, and I only, they only had one. So I get on my sister today because I'm probably the best house cleaner that, that we got. My younger sister may be the best, better cook. But uh, it's really grounded in the community that I lived in with all my cousins, all my aunts and uncles, all the teachers that we knew were in that community. And our communities today are not the way they are, right? And I see it every day in my hometown community. For instance, you know, all of the, the, the black owned properties or properties there because we have infighting in our own color that, that they, the houses are sold or not there anymore. Uh, I've seen the uh, Opportunity Zone stuff that Mr. Trump put into place where all those big boys came in and bought all the properties that we own. And it's, it's sad to see that because now it's multicultural. We don't even know who's walking up and down the street in our neighborhood because of these things that happened. And that Opportunity Zone thing happened 50, 60 years ago. Same thing, where we couldn't get loans for houses. We couldn't get things. And Dr. Caldwell knows what I'm talking about because he emphasized some of this well. But this is our community that we know of. So I saw that how we grew up and I see it today, which only motivates me more to, to really live the way my parents taught me and to care for people, love people and just respect life and try to do my best and try to change what I can change. Love that. Amazing. Amazing. I, you know, Ralph, I have to say, I mean, your humility, given somebody that's been so successful for their entire life, you're so humble. What advice do you give for young people, especially young people of color, as they go? It seems like the arrogance, you know, people who've done nothing are, are, are more, more cocky than you are. And so what, what advice do you give to young people so that they can be successful? Well, I was talking to, to some people today actually on the phone. And I was uh, a parent and some young kids that had the grades to get in University of Virginia, right? But, but uh, and they applied, but they got deferred. Now, they got over 4.0, but they deferred. That's okay, great. Let me call the president. Let me call the AD for you and uh, help you get in. Give your hand up. They didn't want that. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it because I got the grade to get. I said, okay, great. But understand, that's not the way this works. Uh, if you can get a hand up, whatever. And then you go get one back. When you get out there, you bring another one up. And so for me, that's the way I was taught, right? So my, you know, all these awards, whatever it be, it's, it's cool. Uh, it's basketball related, but I probably sent 20, 30 kids to Scott College. We have a scholarship program at Virginia State University under my mother's name. We have a Ralph L. Sampson Senior uh, uh, Hope Fund for Cancer at University of Virginia in our hometown, and we raised about $350,000 thus far. So to give back and help somebody, it makes more sense to me than anything else. For instance, the Hope from for my dad. Like I can give you the money and raise the money at the hospital, but that don't do nothing for me. That might give you money if you can help somebody else. So we got the initiative is getting people medication, getting them transportation, getting them screened for cancer early. Let me do something that has an impact and instead of just being an athlete and raise money. So that's kind of the way I'm built. Thank you. Thank you. So compared to um, you know your time in the NBA. Have you noticed any major changes in sports or just the way that, you know, athletes are, are perceived and are treated, whether that's on, you know, the big national stage or even just, you know, at college level? Well, I'll give you a story. So it's changed dramatically over the years, you know, from the sport, the way it's played basketball-wise and even maybe professional as well. 
But it was funny because recently, uh, over the last six months or so, a group called me to invest into the Minnesota Timberwolves after the whole George Floyd thing, everything is happening, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, great. So I put a group together. And, and uh, actually, before that, I put a group together to buy that because they needed some minority participation, right? So underneath the table, that got that deal got put off to another group. It didn't quite work out. Three or four months later, that group calls me up and says, okay, great. You, we understand you have a group. We want to invest, you, your group to invest in it. And we have roughly now $200 million need. And we have eight slots of $25, $25 million a piece. Okay, great. We said we take all eight slots. Right. The group said we take all these slots. They came back and said, well, you'll be too powerful if you take all these spots. But Ralph, we'll take you and you for 25 minutes, we'll take you and your group for that. And we just want you to come to the game and be step and fetch it and wave to the crowd and go in the community. And I told myself, look, I played this game for about 10 years and I have a passion for it. But you don't want me to work with the players. You don't want to help the players stand. You don't want me doing that. No, we don't want you to do that. We don't need you to be on that side. We want you to be out front and just wave to the crowd. I said, thank you, but no thank you. So that deal went away. So you see that stuff today live. You see, I tell people all the time, you see LeBron James and all the big boys doing their thing, but those are very few and far between. They make a lot of money. Okay, great. And they do great things. Don't get me wrong, but there's the other guys in there that really need to survive. There's a whole, I could go on and on about that whole situation. It's, it's, it is real. I, I said, but the, the gist of it is imagine and I talk to him all the time. Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, LeBron, all them guys getting together as a one unit. How powerful that could be. You got Maddie Johnson saying, I got a hundred million dollars worth of loans. Michael Jordan, I'm going to raise a hundred million. Okay, great. I want to see the impact. I want to see what that money is going to do, how it's going to impact. Michael Jordan, you have these clinics in North Carolina. Well, in our neighborhood, especially our American, this pandemic, right, is hurting our, our, our people. But we don't have any clinics or workout gyms, and we got we got a bar, we got a we got a fast food place, we got a liquor store in the corner, but we don't have any gyms to help our people out with with medicine or even get this shot. So y'all can be that powerful mechanism to make that happen, but we don't have that mindset. We are competing against one another, and that's what this kind of world wants us to do, right? We want to compete against each other instead of helping each other, and that's probably the saddest thing I see in our culture as well. So very true. It's, a, it's perfect. I mean, the, this whole Black Excellence Alliance, our halls of fame, Ralph, are, are very much in line that you and I talked about are very much like that. You do a lot of mentoring to young people. You're just such an incredible role model. As you talk to the young people, what are some of the biggest challenges you think that they're facing um, in, in 2021? Oh, I mean, it's even more now than, than we ever know. I think mental health is one, uh, just with the pandemic and things going on of that nature opportunity for success with where do I go? How do I get involved? How do I get out of high school and what do I do next? With the American dream of going to college and being successful, my oldest daughter went to Stanford uh, maybe eight, nine years ago now and thought she would come out of Stanford and get a very high paying job. It ain't, it ain't happening. Uh, you know, not going to get six figures, whatever. She ends up going to ESPN and very successful, lived in the body now married two kids. But that took, them, that took a minute for her to understand that this is not the real deal. That's not where you're going to get a job. You got to go to grad school. You got to do something. You got to specialize in something else as well. So they got many, many challenges they have to deal with, especially the young kids today coming out of high school. And, and you know, with the spend up, you don't know in the next two or three years what's going to happen. I mean, I can't predict that. I think we all can't predict that what's going to happen 
But we got to be supportive in any way we can to make sure that they understand that this whole pandemic thing hopefully will end. But what's going to be next? And you got to be prepared for whatever's coming next because there's going to be something next. We don't know what it is with the climate change and all the stuff that's happening. But be ready, be prepared, and understand that you got to have your armor on full, full gear all the time because you don't know what's going to happen. And this is actually a, a great transition into this next question. Um, but can you really kind of just tell us a little bit about your youth programs and the foundation you created that support, you know, the, these youth, especially now? And, and also, you know, kind of why initially did you kind of build those programs? Yeah, I started uh, in 1984 doing basketball camps. So I've probably been to 40 or 50,000 kids over, you know, a span of many years. And I, I did the regular basketball camp, come and hang out, enjoy, do your thing, right? About five or six years in, I would greet the kid when they came. I wouldn't leave my camp, some people do, and just speak. And I would put the kids to bed at night and go to every room. So there was a young man there. When he registered him, you know, it's $150 so to come to the camp. He had about 90. And so we let him in anyway. It's, he took a bus from Richmond, Virginia, two hours away from Richmond, Virginia, came up to the camp. Okay, great. But we watched him because we didn't know where this kid came from, right? So I was on him like a hawk. So by Thursday night, I knew who he was, knew his parents, knew everything about him, right? And so the story was amazing. So at the end of the camp, I put him in front of the audience and let him tell the story. And everybody cried. I mean, the story was heartfelt so far. That kid today, since uh, 83, 89, 80, 89, 87, 80, 80, 89, he's still, when he's in the area, he'll stop by my parents' house. Now, he went on to the Army. He got educated through that, and he became a mentor. So that was impactful for me because he still would come by every now and then uh, to my parents' house. And I still remember his name, know where he is, et cetera, et cetera. So... That started my whole transition from just being a basketball player doing basketball camps to making sure you touch the kid where they are and you leave that legacy by touching that kid. If it just one, I've done my job. So that started the whole trend for me to, to build that. And then I went into building what you mentioned in the, in the bio there, the MAP program. I was in church one day. I said, how can I be more impactful? So map, map, everybody has one. You know, your teachers have a plan. Everybody has something. So motivation, being self-motivated, which I was self-motivated when I played. I was self-motivated when I lift weights. You have to understand, I was the first guy in the NBA to board weights into the NBA. Uh, and they, they were lifting weights. Weights would throw your shot off, weights would do things. So I did that. My attitude, you hear people say they have a bad attitude. You got to have a good attitude. And what's your game plan? And every, every business, there's a plan, right? So I coined that phrase. We had map programs in my camps and high schools and whatever, so people get that sometimes. So I started the whole map program. And so we touched kids. I've been in elementary schools on Zoom calls over the last year with the map program program as well. So we teach that, and that's kind of my passion now, to get more kids involved in this whole map thing. Basketball is just a piece of the pie, right, that entices kids to come. But then when I get them to come, I can teach them more than just a game of basketball. So that's how that all started. Wonderful. Thank you. Excellent. Before I ask the next question, I'm, I'm looking at the comments and, uh, you know, uh, one, one person said, your buzzer beater versus the Lakers still haunts my father's dreams. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's that, uh, yeah, that's that, that's that, uh, haunts Michael Cooper. That's that, uh, that's that net in the back of me. So it's good. 
<laughs> I, you know, so I, so I tell people, Doc, I tell people that's okay, great. We we go into that series. Uh, we have beat the Denver Nuggets in a seven-game grueling series with Alex Ingers, Kiki Vanderway, all those people as well. We go to the Lakers. They beat us like a drum. I mean, just beat us by 20 points, whatever, in the first game. We had a meeting. We regrouped, and we beat them the next four straight. So whoever had that that, that uh, uh, question, that got beaten anyway. Because we were going back to, we were going back to Houston. After that, if they didn't win that game, we were going back to Houston. So I told Matt, go time. We just made you didn't have to travel and get beat and go home with your with your tail behind your back, you know. So it's good. There you go. Good. The uh, so so upcoming. I mean, you're involved in so many things, Ralph. So what are some of the projects that are upcoming that you you want our audience to know about? Um, you're doing so many wonderful things. So we we, we figured out one that uh, with with you know having the media and the podcasts and radio shows today, you got to have a voice. You got to have something that can uh, significantly impact people. When they look at me and we have Center Court podcast, people say, "Oh, we want to talk basketball. We don't want to talk stats and statistics, whatever. We want to talk story." I said, "Okay, we can do that." But guess what? We're gonna have people like Dr. Dr. Caldwell on to talk about life and how it relates in our in our, in our thing. You talk about the. Tom Brady and that significant, which I think impacted a whole lot of people. So it's become very significant with me to be able to do that. So we're doing that. We started a venture company. And it's a little bit different than a normal venture capital company, right? So we can invest in projects, we can raise money, but I'm like, okay, great. Of all the businesses out here, most people don't know how to run a startup business. You know, they 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 wear many hats, they do things, but they need help in a lot of areas. So we have some advisory services that we will partner with businesses and understand that as well. And then I'm also partnering with the Darden School of Business at University of Virginia because everybody just can't go to business school. You know what I mean? They don't have the money, they don't have time, whatever. But, you know, there's only maybe two African-Americans at the Darden School of Business, only two. Uh, and we got one guy that's on our team that will be our director of education that has a scholarship there as well. And it resonated with me as well when I found he was there and I found out my my best friend's son, oldest son, was there on the scholarship with this guy. So we put him through that process. He comes out this year. And my friend passed away maybe five years ago with a massive heart attack on July 4th. So significant for me. So I made sure everything was right together and tight. So now we can take uh, a, a company, uh, a, a person through our uh, subscription program and teach them some of the dark schools. The principal cause. what do you think about money, right? As an athlete or a person, what do you think about money? That when they come out of college, you, you guys, I'm sure, understand, and people listen. You come out of school, you don't have you don't have a clue about money. Nobody's teaching you uh, finance, so nobody's teaching you taxes. NBA guys will be involved, or professional players will be involved in subscription models as well. What do you think about money? Guess what? You got to pay taxes in every state out there to stay tax. You understand that? I do a seminar with the NBA Players Association every now and then. I go to the top rookies that's going to get drafted. I do a thing called the Million dollar phenomenon. I'm gonna pay you a million dollars a day, young fella. What's what tax bracket are you in? Every time I do it, it's only one or two that know that tax bracket. Okay, what kind of car are you gonna buy? You know that. You know, so all of them write down what they're gonna do, and most 98% of them are probably underwater before they even start. I'm gonna buy a car, I'm gonna put some rims on it, I'm, I'm gonna do all this kind of stuff, and right now I don't have a place to live. I ain't got any furniture. I ain't got anything with to make me a better basketball player until they bought three years in the league. And then at that point in time, guess what? If they're not performing well, their first contract is over, they might not have a second. So right. 
how do we think about that? That's some of the things we're doing in this company that makes sense. We have a new hand sanitizer product that we have developed with another company as well. It's like the best out there. You put it on your hand, the last while. So projects like that, we are very significant. And then we have a community part of a website. So we partner with Big Picture Learning. So a percentage of our proceeds go off to these other organizations that will support them because they got to have a significant give back meeting with what we do. So we find groups like that that can show me. It's like, okay, NBA Cares, right? I mean, you, everybody's heard of that, right? NBA Cares. Give you tell me what anything NBA Cares has done, except for go in the community, repaint it, put some computers up, and go in there for the All-Star game and come back out. Right. Nobody can tell me. I mean, if you, you're going to have to research it. You're going to have to see if it's significant what they do. That should be something that everybody knows if it's real to me. So I'm, I'm going to work with them as well sooner or later, but we'll see how that goes. Well, that's actually a perfect segue into another one of these questions. And I'm actually going to transition to a question that I received from an audience member. And they were asking, you know, speaking of business, Winter Circle is in the realm of leveraging relationships. Has there been any particular reoccurring business needs that you've seen in the Black ecosystem specifically? Great question. Great question. Yes. The, the, the need for mentorship uh the the need for you know all the other business tools that you need but on those dark days when you don't know if it's going to work or you're waking up at night and want to do this want to do that and you're struggling to to to, to figure out the next step it's really called coaching i think the biggest need is for having a vehicle to be a mentor and that's part of what we do on our website that we're building is we put in these video modules so you know you can read a book you can understand it, but how much would you ascertain when you when you read that book? Put a video on there. I mean, I can take an NBA guy and say, look, here's how you buy a car. Here's, you know, it, it, it depreciates and all that. But if you tell me, if I tell you that, you're not going to remember it. But if I have a video, I can tell you that you always go back and look at it yourself. So coaching is huge and mentorship is even, you know, even better if you can get somebody one-on-one -on -one and tell them how to be successful in your business and your market, which is which is to grow exponentially across across the world if we can finish putting that together. So that's kind of the biggest thing that I see. Thank you. Excellent. You know, Ralph, I mean, what, what people don't realize is extraordinary athletes are extraordinarily brilliant. And so clearly, I mean, clearly you are a thinking, you're, you're a thinking man. I mean, you're, 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 you are, are, are an intellectual, you know, you really are strategic in what you do. And so, you know, this is such an important time and, and we need leaders like you, especially in the black communities. We deal with Black Lives Matters as we deal with a lot of the abuse and a lot of the racism and, and other things. And so, so what, what advice do you have for people who have a high profile out there, who, who are role models, who can, who, can, who can really motivate people to do the right thing in this particular point in time? What, what's your advice for them? Yeah, great question. You know, it's, it, it is tough out here when you have the heart to give back and to want to help people, especially if you want to do it in the masses. Um, for instance, we have in my hometown four African-American churches that are very dysfunctional. Uh, the pastors don't stay and live in the, the community. So they expect to go. I'm a church family church has about 20 members, right? So, but they want to expect certain things. And I was telling them, that, you know, okay, if there is a disproportionate number of people that are African Americans not getting this shot, not knowing how to get the shot, not going online that are 80 years old and, and don't have computers, why don't we sit that up in the church 
and bring them over and drive them to. So we've been doing that, right? Drive them to the place to get it. Be advocates for that, right? But it takes the village, right? I can do it. Someone by myself, I can't do it all. So realistically, when you are that person that's there, it's like basketball. It's like a team. Put a good team around you that want to do the same thing, and you're going to win a championship. It ain't going to be everybody then. But you got to find that good team of people. If you can have one or two advocates with you, say, look, I got this guy over here. Can you go pick him up? Can we take him to the doctor? There's a team of people because we can't do it by ourselves. And we didn't do it by ourselves when we were growing up. It was the community that did it when we lived, right? It's the same concept. We do it together, we build together, and we stay together. Um, I know this is a, another follow-up to um, a question from the audience that kind of directly correlates with Dale's question. Um, having attended the university founded by Thomas Jefferson, what is your opinion on how America should address the dark past of some of their founding fathers? Yeah, good question. So I, I came to the bicentennial of University of Virginia a number of years ago, and they called me to come. And uh, okay, great. And I was coming from California. You want me to come? Are you going to fly me back? Nah, you put me in a hotel back? Nah, okay, great. So I went through all that whole, whole shit back. And I was at the end of the end, end of the program, which was fun. Um, so I saw, saw a significant change there by coming back to that. And ironically, I understand that the board's head in there and I'll come back after an event and I'm sitting at the bar just kind of deflecting back on kind of the day of the events. And I'm sitting beside two ladies and the one lady said, do you know who my sister is? I said, no, I don't know who she is. And it's a Caucasian lady, who she is. And, you know, he had a, a glass of wine, except start talking. And she went to my one of my rival high schools. Okay, great. And, then other, and then her sister says who she is. Okay, great. I had to go back and look her up. So it was one of the, the top 50 wealthiest venture capital people in, in the country that came from Alabama High School in Charlottesville, went to UVA, et cetera, et cetera. But she was telling me how significant it was for me to come back. And of the whole Thomas Jefferson history of, you know, him being with slaves and having kids, whatever, that whole deal, right? So you see that. Okay, great. And then move forward a couple of years as well. So at the campus university, there's this slave memorial. It's like a circle of different things that tells you some history. Okay, that's cool. It does nothing for me. It doesn't do anything for me to read somebody's name on a piece of stone that says this person was here, this, that, and that. It gives you the history. But what are you actually doing to change that? You know, are you letting more African-American kids come in? Are you reparation for kids that are out there that are descendants that you're letting them go to school? How are you making an impact by just putting a, a statue or a museum on the campus that stone that's going to sooner or later go away anyway? So that's my beef with Virginia, University of Virginia. How can we change that culture a little bit? Now, I'm sure there may be things that I don't know about in the works, but this is what I see. And so being able to change that dynamic a little bit, where we can send more kids to school, but I don't even send them to school, but get them a good paying job after that because you can graduate from any school it ain't guaranteed to get a good job i don't care what resume you have or whatever it's not what you know as we all know it's who you know is what needs to be happening and we have to make sure that that's still there where you not only can get that now one of the most things i don't know if you guys know this whatever it's called the ron brown scholar program a guy named mike mallory run that secretary of state the pathway and they have 20 million dollar endowment it's very special yeah. 
But if you ever look them up, their program is significant, I think, in this market just because they take that kid and make sure they get interns and scholarship. They mentor them through the whole process. By the time they become a junior, they have a place to go to work and they're very significant. So look that one up. That's the model that I love and I support that organization like 100%. And, and, and people forget Ron Brown. He could have been the first black president if he hadn't died. He could have been. He been. I mean, the really quietest quiet. Quite as quick that Ron Brown started helping Maddie Johnson be Maddie Johnson after basketball. Oh, really? Oh, really? He told him to sit him down and said, you can be this, that, and the other, because he was doing all these other, remember, the magic hour on TV and all these other things he was doing that didn't, really didn't work out. And he could tell the story as well. But Ron Brown took him beside and said, hey, hey, dude, here, you can, this is what you need to be. And he listened and learned. And, you know, obviously, hence where Maddie Johnson is a businessman, you know, after basketball as well. But very significant. You're right. He, he, could, he probably would have been a, the, the first black president. Yeah, he was really a mover and shaker. And so uh, now we have a, a question from the audience. Um, uh, you know, we, we can't get away without some basketball questions. So one is, you know, how was it the adjustment to be part of the Twin Towers? And, and, and I'm going to add, what did you learn in life to, to be the star and to be the center of everything? And now you're, you're part of the Twin Towers. Was that a hard adjustment or what did you learn from that? Well, no, so I came in the, you know, the Houston Rocks in 1983, and then I had the likes of Caldwell Jones, Major Jones, Elvin Hayes, Calvin Murphy, some old veterans that were there with me that taught me my rookie year about not just basketball, but basketball on and off the court, right? The next year, um, we ended up getting the first pick again, and they came to me and said, how do you like to play with Akeem Olajuwon, being from Houston? I said, that's great, because he can play the center, I can play the forward. We got this whole Twin Tower concept. So it was fun, and it was exciting for the NBA at that point in time because everybody in the league then had to go with two big guys. They could play. We could run. We could jump. We could do without, you know, the whole deal. So we had to do that. They, they had to beat us up no matter what. But the significance of that is that I, I made a quote in the paper uh, our second year and said, if the coach just turns us loose, we can win a championship. Just, just you know, let us go. And that coach Bill Fish made me read that article amongst the team. I said, I'm not reading the article. I said, but if you turn us loose, we, we will win. We ended up going to the finals with this picture behind me with no guards point forward, Rari, because our guards went out on drugs. And we we still went to the championship. If we'd have had our guards together, we probably would have won, we would have won that series against Boston. But the significance of that playing with King Elijah one with two guys, we could look at each other and say, Let's go. And let's play. Let's let's kick it in gear and go. But they wouldn't keep us together. You know, so understand this, and I think people out there, you, you know, when if I came out of college in nineteen, in my, my my freshman year, Kevin McHale wouldn't have went to Boston Celtics. Okay, and the next year Isaiah Thomas would not went to the Detroit Pistons, and James Worthy would not went to the Los Angeles Lakers. So three guys that were their first pick, you know, came into the league. So that that would have happened, as well as all the stuff we had with Kim Lawrence. So I think everybody's in the right place at the right time. But understand this as well, because it's not nothing that we should know. Why does Patrick Ewing go to New York? That ain't just something that was out of out of a coin toss or a hat. That's not that's just something. why did Kevin Durant now just move from Golden State to Brooklyn? Because they want the rates and the ratings and all that from the Lakers and LeBron James going to Lakers. This ain't this ain't uh, this ain't a trick, right? This is real. Because the revenue that's generated in the NBA, it's about $8 billion a year. 
just for the TV rights and the apparel rights and all those owners getting that money, right? So you can pay somebody $200 million. If you get $8 million, I mean, you can do that. So it's it's the politics of the game, but it is what is real. But think about all that. Why third player goes somewhere in the league? Go back to when Chris Paul was trying to get to the Lakers, and the league said no. He went to the Clippers. They wouldn't let him go to the Lakers. So it's it's a game that you got to play, and I didn't know that coming out of college because if I would have, I wouldn't have, I would have gotten my degree, but I left University of Virginia to go to Lakers and play with Magic all day long. Right, right, right. <laughs> you imagine me and Cream, me and Cream, I do the bar being Twin Towers. That'd have been a whole different ball game. A whole different ball game. A whole different ball game. That's 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 good insight. Well, I wanted to um, kind of read one of the comments um, that was posted in the chat just as a, a real um, thanks to you before I go into my next question. This person says, this session is such a wonderful, real breath of fresh air. Most people don't realize how to manage money, especially in communities of color. We so many times want to, quote unquote, get mine and you need to figure out how to, quote unquote, get yours. Thank you for doing the real work, the work of giving a hand up to others. That's an example that I hope will be contagious and spread throughout our communities. Thank you for all for all that you do. So I did want to mention thank you, thank you. Comment, yeah. um, from one of our attendees. So moving on to another question here, <clears throat> and we've only got a, a couple more minutes, but I do want to ask just a couple more questions. Was Elvin Hayes a mentor and or helpful to you in your early NBA experience? So as I understand, you know, watching the game in the, in the, in the, in the late 70s, all you saw was the Big E, Elvin Hayes, and played at Washington at that point in time with the Bullets. Went to a few games, but you see him with the back of the move basket. So for me, it was uh, uh, just an honor to get drafted by Houston and have Elvin Hayes and Caldwell Jones. Caldwell Jones and played at Philly and they won a championship, et cetera, et cetera. So I had a back to the basket guy and I had a face to basket. And both of them were six eleven or seven foot tall. So I learned a lot. I ended up living in the same neighborhood of Elvin Hayes. He would pick me up for practice. He would take me under his wing. He would take me on the road to dinner. Uh, I knew his family, et cetera, et cetera. And then he would say, let's get away from it for a day when he knew I needed to get away from all of it. And let's go to my ranch and see my cutting horses. He'd drive me there. We'd just get away for the day because he could understand because I was doing interviews every day. I could play every day, the whole deal. And so I realized that after my, fresh, my, my rookie year, whatever, what he did for me. And I only remember it because his last game, because of the political ramifications of what his contract said, he needed he needed so many other minutes, right, to get his minutes so he can get his two hundred thousand dollar bonus, right. So we ain't going to the we ain't going to the playoffs anyway. I mean, you know, that we tanking games, but he so so I told him, you know, I'm not playing. I have a strained ankle, whatever. Elvin's got to play. So he ends up getting his bonus because we knew what his contract stated and said because we were tightening a group, right. So he's like, okay, great. I'm just going to sit back. I'm, you know, I go in the game. I think an uh, ankle sprain. I come out. I can't play anymore. They let Elvin play. He gets his minutes and he gets his check. So he's very significant in my life in my first couple of years because he taught me the politics of the game. And that's why you see some people like, you know, the team now, we need a veteran on the bench that can help the young guys. 
But sometimes they don't talk real to those young guys about what life is off the court. They can talk about on the court, but off the court. But Elvin and Caldwell and Calvin Murphy, their dear friend, told me everything. You know, this, this, whatever, that, that, whatever. Ins and outs, don't be going out. Here's the city of the watch. Everything about the NBA at that point in time. So he was a great mentor for me. Awesome. Thank you. So, so this is, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I founded the Black Entrepreneur Hall of Fame, the Black Inventors Hall of Fame, and the Black Tennis Hall of Fame is really about legacy. And there, there's so many extraordinary people who, because the history books forgot them, we're going to remember with our Halls of Fame, thanks to Glenn and James. And so, so you, I mean, you, you have, you know, you could, you, could, you could just do nothing from now on, and you have an extraordinary legacy. But I know you, and I know you want to do more. What more do you want to do? What's going to be Ralph Sampson's legacy beyond the court? Well, let me tell you something about Hall of Fames, and I beg you guys to do the same thing. So I'm in High School Hall of Fame, Virginia State Hall of Fame, whatever it may be. All of them are great, right? Uh, Naismith Hall of Fame is great. Don't get me wrong. That's a great award. It's sitting in my mom's basement in the trophy cabinet and collecting a lot of dust. <laughs> and that's what it's about. But I get to go to events. I get to go to inductions. I get to, to do a lot of things. They, I just had on the interview as well, one of the great uh, NBA ambassadors, ACC legend, that was the first African-American guy to play at University of North Carolina, Mr. Charlie Scott. Charlie Scott just got in the Hall of Fame five years ago. Okay, but his, his basketball history is 50 years ago. So why put me in the Hall of Fame today when I played that many years and all of a sudden now I deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? I, I just don't quite understand that whole piece, right? So that's an issue for me at that point as well. Hall of Fame puts like doctor on your name, Hall of Fame. Okay, it's great. You get to go get chicken dinners, go to awards, go and to play golf tennis to raise money for the Hall of Fame. But some of these guys out here, don't have money to, to pay their bills. But the Hall of Fame, but I can go raise money for you, but you can't help me do what needs to be done. So I have some bones to pick with the Hall of Fame as well, which we're trying to work on. But understand this, but you got the Hall of Fame. You can be more impactful. And one of the things I did do in my in my business career, I used to uh, consult with a company called Exo Communication, which is a guy named Carl Icon, the New York big time investor guy. And he, had a program where he wanted me to help them. They had spent a year trying to work with Howard University to get their technology at Howard University. And they couldn't get in the door. So I called somebody there. We got in the door. I said, okay, what have they offered you? I said, well, we need $5 million at Howard University to change our telecom infrastructure. That's what they wanted to pay. I went back and said, are you crazy? Why you give them? They don't have that money for the infrastructure. Did you do any analysis of their infrastructure at all that know that they need $5 million worth of infrastructure? They said no. So we did that. We found out like 1,200 phone lines were there in at and that was not plugged in, that it was paying $27,000 a month extra in, in telecom. They just paid it. Found out that Howard sits right on the hub of the internet, two blocks away. So it's something called backhaul, right? You, you got to pay for your distance of the internet. They said, Two, two blocks away. None. So after we did that, we got some business off of that. And then we were able to do a number of other universities. Uh, the lovely uh, Oscar Robinson loves me to death because he was able to do it at Cincinnati and get a, a mailbox check for making an introduction. So when you build your Hall of Fame, 
these people have a lot of bandwidth and a lot of contact connection. What can they bring to the table to your Hall of Fame that will be significant enough to generate revenue for it, not just doing the chicken dinner? You know, what 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 kind of programs can you institute? For instance, I'm, I'm one of my sponsors at the radio show is called uh, 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 Loan Depot. And we have a call with them. I said, look, I don't want your advertisement. I don't need your advertisement to pay me if something must. You either got to teach somebody how to get a loan and understand the ins and outs of a loan. So when we do our videos, when we do our advertisement with the way social media and things like that, we can do that today. But we got to teach people how to do that and educate people how to do that. Then you can pay me whatever you want at that point in time. But I'm not going to go and do an advertisement. It's one thing about athletes, right? You can call me and take me to a chicken dinner. I can do an appearance for you. You can pay me five, ten, twenty, thirty cents. We can pay me whatever the fee is, right? But your company is making millions of dollars. But I'm gonna do one thing for you to brand your company and put my name out there. But I'm, you will get millions of dollars. That's that's foolish to me. You can pay me and give me some equity. Give me something if I believe in your product. If I don't believe your product, I don't want to do it. So make sure these Hall of Fames can sustain themselves. By being that with everybody you adopt, it can be a foot soldier or an ambassador to your Hall of Fame that's going to help support you and not just come to a chicken dinner. Right. Because I can cook chicken anyway, so it's good. <laughs> it's, it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, thanks, Ralph. Thank you. Well, that is definitely a key takeaway that we all have to really implement in the future. And so I know we are, we are up on our hour. Um, but I do want to um, bring your attention, Ralph, to the, the Q&A. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think there might be a um, position or, or job um, that Warren Thompson is asking you about. So definitely bring your attention to the chat. Um, I hope it's the Warren Thompson, the Warren Thompson I texted earlier, right? He's in the hospitality world. That's who I'm talking about. So he's a UVA guy as well. So I'm, I'm there. I texted him earlier today. <laughs> And so speaking of, I just want to say thank you all so very much for joining us this evening. And Ralph, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to just be completely transparent and open and honest with us and just share a little bit about your story. So I do really appreciate you coming here and talking to us this evening. Thank you, man. You did a great job. I appreciate you. Anything I can do, let me know. And uh, you know, Dr. Caldwell and Glenn and, and, and James, whatever, appreciate meeting you guys and everybody that's joined us. Um, you know, it's, it's good to see you guys and uh, let's keep this thing going. I love it. Thank you so very much. And for our attendees, um, have a wonderful evening and I hope to see you at our next event with actually Warren Thompson on March 17th. So have a good evening, everyone. I'll be there, Warren. I'll be listening. Awesome. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.